Ephemeral is a production of iHeartRadio. There are currently thousands of television networks, most of which you've never heard of. This is Create. You too, America. Cool TV. Tough TV. Cozy TV. Juice TV. TV. The Live Well Network. The Country Network. The Justice Network. The Smile of a Child Children's Television Network. The Bam of the Channel, yes indeed. But once upon a time, there were four. NBC. CBS. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. ABC. And Dumont. This is the Dumont Television Network. During the golden age of television, Dumont produced over 20,000 episodes of original programming. By 1955, the network had fallen apart, and Dumont went off the air for good. More than a decade's worth of content is now almost entirely extinct. Of those 20,000 broadcasts, some 98% have been lost to time. An estimated 350 complete titles survive, held mostly by archives, collectors, and historians. It is largely forgotten today, but it doesn't deserve to be. Historian David Weinstein is the gatekeeper of the Dumont legacy. I'm David Weinstein, author of The Forgotten Network, Dumont and the Birth of American Television. Dumont is not the only network whose catalog stands woefully incomplete. The majority of television programs from the era have not survived. For starters, reruns were not a thing. There wasn't a lot of money in saving programs in the 40s and 50s. One of the big selling points of television is it's live in early TV. You're watching something as it's happening. Over time, there were more programs shot on film, and that became less important. But there was a real magic in early television in watching something live. And the broadcasters tried to do that as much as possible. Plus, it was cheaper and more efficient. Mechanical television had no mechanism by which to record. Videotape comes along in the mid-1950s. But before that, the main way that uh, programs could be saved was on kinescope. Kinescope recording. Faithful reproduction, of course, is the ideal. If you had an affiliate that wasn't connected to the coaxial cable and unable to receive live transmissions, kinescopes were the network solution. They would literally set up a movie camera in front of a television screen and record it. And then they would make prints from that film and shuttle it around the country. That's why so many of the kinescopes that have survived today look almost like these sort of beams or messages from outer space or something. They're flickery, grainy. It was a fairly primitive technology, but it worked. And even those were ephemeral. We're lucky that as many were saved as were saved because once the station would show a kinescope, it would not keep it thinking, oh, good, we can show it six months later during summer rerun season or something like that. That was not the way they were thinking. For television historians, kinescopes are about as good as it gets. Any live television that we're watching today on YouTube or anywhere else is from a kinescope through the mid-1950s. It's easy to forget now, but for basically the first 40 years of television, networks were king. For the most part, what you watched on television was created by 
one of the three major networks. And the vast majority of the shows that we think of as defining television and defining what Americans watched were network programs. So the networks, ABC, CBS, NBC, exerted a tremendous amount of influence over American culture until cable equalized the playing field. If you're flipping around on a box, it doesn't really matter where the station is coming from. It could be coming from TBS in Atlanta. It could be coming from your backyard. It's just a number on a box. But before that, television was a lot more local. It depended on being able to pick up a signal that was broadcast locally on a transmitter. NBC and CBS had both come up as radio networks. ABC was formed when NBC sold part of its radio business to the owner of the Lifesavers Candy Company. Want a Lifesaver? Yes. Ever hear anyone say no to a lifesaver? Since radio became a model in many ways for television, a lot of the radio performers moved over to television, and the sponsors, the ones who paid the bills to the industry, moved from radio to television. That gave CBS and NBC huge advantages because they were the major radio networks. They had contacts with affiliates across the country. They had contacts with advertisers. They had contacts with the Federal Communications Commission, which became the main regulator for television and, of course, regulated radio. And they had a lot of experience producing and operating programs, and they had stars under contract. So they had huge advantages. But unlike the big three, Dumont had no ties to radio. It began as a manufacturing company, helmed by the brand's namesake, Alan B. Dumont. Alan Dumont was an engineer, and he was a really good engineer. He's best known for helping to innovate and introduce cathode ray tubes, which are the foundation for television sets. And he loved electronics engineering. He was born in Brooklyn, grew up in the 19-teens, 1920s, fiddling with electronics. He gets into manufacturing, and then in 1931, with $1,000 in the basement of his home, he decides to start a company to manufacture cathode ray tubes. In the late 1930s, as television is sort of ending its experimental phase and starting to get commercial, meaning it's starting to be available to consumers, he decides to manufacture television sets. Dumont makes the kind of big tubes that mean not just bigger pictures, but also brighter, sharper pictures. He's one of the earliest television manufacturers. And from there, starting in 1939 and then through World War II, he starts to operate television stations. Through it all, he's a lot more both interested and adept in the engineering part and in running the manufacturing part than he is in television broadcasting, even though television broadcasting is more visible and probably his company's greatest contribution to American culture. Dumont was not your typical CEO. As television takes off, Dumont is at the forefront of the television industry as a network. However, Alan B. Dumont remains shy, remains introverted, even though he could be very visible as the head and namesake of the Dumont Television Network. He spends a lot of time in suburban New Jersey in his electronics laboratory, fiddling with the electronics. He very rarely comes to New York to check on the network operations. When he did venture down to the New York production facilities, he'd be more likely to comment on the vertical hold of the set than the content of a program. 
Once, when called to the White House to discuss broadcast standards. I'm just explaining a simple fact. What simple fact? Mary, that in direct view electronic cathode ray tubes, such as you find in our Dumont set, it's possible to increase dimension without uh, image disintegration or loss of definition. Dumont's technobabble frustrated President Eisenhower so much that, after just a few minutes, he was ushered out of the Oval Office. Well, it may be a fact, but it ain't simple. Dumont was an avid boater. Aboard his craft, the Hurricane 3, he'd planned deep-sea excursions like Long Island to the Florida Keys. With no land in sight, he'd warm up the TV set he kept on board and scan the airwaves to see what he could pick up. In a 1955 interview with Edward R. Murrow, Dumont reflected on his hobby. I find that when you get out in the ocean, the problems level off. In other words, any problems you have in business, when you're out in the ocean, wondering if you're going to get back or not, why they don't seem so important. He didn't want to be bothered by a lot of the complex and sometimes nasty business that the head of a large company with multiple interests in manufacturing and in broadcasting had to deal with. His attitude was frequently sort of let me alone. Priority one for a fledgling television network, get affiliate stations to carry your programming. If you didn't have affiliates, you didn't really have a network and you could not charge advertisers enough money because you didn't have the carriage. You weren't being seen across the country. So it became a huge deal to get those affiliates. The trouble was, besides New York, D.C., and a few other big markets, most cities operated less than four television stations, often just one or two. The scarcity in affiliates was due largely to FCC regulations. They effectively created a system whereby only three networks would be able to flourish because there weren't enough stations and affiliates across the country to support more. So after CBS and NBC, there was intense competition between ABC and Dumont to see which network would survive as the third network. The hub for Dumont's production was New York's WABD. New York, window on the world. They're not lavish facilities, but they're okay for what Dumont is doing for its production. But one of the cool things is it's right in downtown New York during the 40s and 1950s. So they have access to all of these great performers, jazz performers, Charlie Parker appeared on Dumont. But even more than that, you have a lot of very young people Many of them had just served in the war, got some engineering training, and they decide they want to go into television. They work hard, and then they go out drinking, checking out the music, checking out the scene there. The people who work there said the executives never even bothered coming downtown. So the whole production aspect had a sort of kids in a candy store feel. (laughs) They were younger people, they were smart, they were creative, and there was a sense that there weren't a lot of middle managers and very little upper management sort of watching them as they created live programming because Dumont was both underfunded and understaffed. It left a lot of room for creativity. You see this a little bit at the other networks as you watch the programs, but NBC and CBS especially were a lot more established. You had a lot more people coming in from radio. There was a hierarchy. There were significant controls on content. There was a community acceptance department. There was a whole infrastructure at the other networks that just wasn't there at Dumont. What Dumont lacked in infrastructure, they would have to make up for with creativity 
and innovation. Television is so ubiquitous today, 24-7 everywhere, that it's hard to imagine a time when it wasn't on all the time. I mean, there are sort of famous test patterns. In the 40s, even into the 50s, television stations would go off the air, not just at night, but sometimes in the middle of the day. There might be a noontime news, and then it would just be dark for three or four hours or five hours. The other networks had daytime radio shows. You can't love someone one day and then the next day stop loving him. And they didn't want to cut into that business. In November 1948, Dumont began full-day programming, and it was huge news in the industry. So they were on the air from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. This was the longest broadcast day among all the networks and really anywhere. So much of their thinking and so much of their programming set the stage for later daytime programming. They had a man-on-the-street show. A precursor to The Today Show. There was television shopping. Five months from today is Christmas Day. Think HSN or QVC. They had a show called Your Television Babysitter. You could pop the kid down and watch counting and reading and stuff like that. Sesame Street, anyone? My favorite was a show called OK Mother, a show for moms hosted by Dennis James. OK Mother, it's your time of day. OK Mother, time to have you say the problem. Playhouse, let you wear your views. The guest consultant with all the latest. So join in the fun. Everyone with laughs, problems, and funny games. So, okay, mother, okay, mother, we're presenting Dennis James. Imagine your typical daytime talk show setup a high energy host. Who makes the cooling lemonade? A live studio audience of mostly women. They play games, give away prizes. It's all very commonplace now, but it wasn't then. It was one of the first shows to sort of focus on moms. No dishes to do, no lunch to prepare. Just sit back and all our entertainers here will entertain you. Okay, mother! James had a long career as a sportscaster and game show host. Dennis James, at the time, according to rumors, was involved with the co-host, a model named Julia Mead, who would assist him. And you could see them sort of hamming it up, lots of innuendo, lots of sort of inside jokes. If I could be that beautiful, I could make a million dollars in television, you know that? Speak to us, Judy, go ahead. There's a sort of loopy energy. He gets angry at one person during a rhyming game when she gives him a word that he can't rhyme. Oh, honey, every day we've had it. Unless just once, let me say one thing here. We haven't had a lecture like this in a long time. The object of line and rhyme is to have some fun. I don't care what you stick me with. We ask every day before the show to not use the words that were used yesterday. So that we can have some fun, you'll get the gifts, we have some laughs. But every time I get hit with the same word every day, it stumps me, it stops me dead. You don't want to stop me, do you? You don't want to. Not everything is as polished as it later became on television. And part of the reason is everything is going out live. They can't just decide, okay, you can't be angry, Dennis, let's retake that. Tremendously popular in its time, a single kinescope survives today. (laughs) There's a scene where he suddenly gets in the middle of uh, an audience filled with mothers. These two guys are in a suit. A very handsome daddy standing in the corner. Come on out here, Pop, so we can see you. 
Man, that's a good-looking fella, girl. And they start plugging bread. Wonder bread. Is that what you want? <laughs> what, you got a man from Wonder and a man from Bond? Well, both of these kids are in the door. They're bread salesmen, and they're paying Dennis James off on the side to quietly do that. I could imagine the conversation where he's saying, you know, don't worry, come over to the show, give me 50 bucks and a year's worth of bread, and I'll let you talk about Bond Bread and Wonder Bread on this show. They give a line and he makes a rhyme. The first line is, what is the best bread made? And he says, I guess I would have a bread if I were being paid. Okay? Fine, let's see. There's a sketch about discipline, which is a little bit odd, with Julia Mead playing the mom and disciplining Dennis James for getting his trousers wet. Go take these trousers off and put on your other trousers, my what? Go take these off and put on your other trousers. And Instead of all these mothers, you want me to take these trousers off? You know, I'm have to do it. I'm the guy who can do that. Don't ever say that to me. Now, little Dennis, what, pay attention to mother. Yes, I'm paying. So it has this sort of weird almost flirtatious or sexual thing going on between them while it's also trying to talk about discipline. And then he asks the moms and they talk about different approaches to a kid who keeps doing the same thing and makes you nuts because of that. Should we spank and punish that child for going in front of the sprinkler? Will you take it first, Mother, your name, please, and where you're from? You can see him trying to sort of give something to that audience when there was not a lot of programming aimed at mothers. Five seconds, four seconds. A lot of the performers from this time would do a lot of different things to just try to keep the show moving. Stunts, gags a mile a minute, crazy costumes. The idea was just sort of keep things going, keep things moving, and then get on to the next show. And you get a lot of weirdness as a result. Isn't this silly? was an especially weird show in a sea of weirdness on early television. It was a kid's show, and in some ways it was an amazing production. They did it live every day for nearly six years, and it was hugely popular, especially among tween and elementary school-aged boys. All set, Ranger? I'll set, Captain. And turn ship full speed ahead for Comet Ike. Now, this is a show that's what's known today as a space opera. It takes place in the future. Captain Video is basically a superhero trying to make the galaxy safe. Were there any signs of sabotage? He promotes a lot of the values that were important at the time, fair play, honesty. Some of the shows have a sort of anti-communist, anti-totalitarian subtext to them. And some talk about science and space travel also. Waiting for law and order, Captain Video operates from a mountain retreat with secret agents at all points of the globe. Possessing scientific secrets and scientific weapons, Captain Video asks no quarter and gives none to the forces of evil. The shoestring budget for the daily production translated into a bare-bones aesthetic, for better or for worse. And then in the middle of everything, when they would sort of slow down a little, the Captain Video would decide to check on his agents on Earth. As communications rockets flashed with the speed of light between Metasperos and Earth, the remote carrier beam was functioning swiftly too, as it brought Captain Video's special agent into sharp focus. And his agents on Earth were frequently in the Old West because they would show literally portions of old Western serials in the middle of this futuristic space show. The Callahan girl brought word that a fellow named the Whistler 
murdered Jerry Blake. And that's how they would kill a little bit of time. And then Captain Video would stop checking on his agents on Earth. And another few minutes of the show would go on as he would try to fight the bad guys in outer space. Now let's get right into today's story. The first couple of years, uh, the star of Captain Video was an actor named Richard Coogan. And he played it a little bit tug-in-cheek. He would flub lines. He would smile at some of the more ridiculous lines. And... The whole show was especially campy. Well, now that we've settled our personal differences, suppose we get down to business. A couple of years in, a man named Al Hodge takes over, and he takes it a lot more seriously. Al Hodge had a radio background as the original Green Hornet. He was a Sunday school teacher and logged countless hours doing in-person appearances as Captain Video. On and off the air, he saw himself as a role model. Empires have actually fallen because a letter didn't arrive on time. And that's why the Ranger and I have fought, fought in battle to try and prove that an interplanetary mail service is practical and can be used. Around the same time, a new producer named Olga Drus entered the picture. Very sharp, very smart. She had also done radio dramas, and she inherited the show, and she said, it's an abomination, and I'm going to fix it. I'm really going to try to make it a show about ethics, about morality, about fighting totalitarianism, about doing the right thing. She was interested in child psychology. And suddenly the shows, the plot started to make sense. A number of golden age of science writers, people like uh, Jack Vance, Isaac Asimov, Walter M. Miller, Arthur C. Clarke, a number of very good writers got involved and they would write like a two to three week series of Captain videos, but still had very low budget. And there was still some sort of cheesy elements of it, but they got rid of the films, for example and staged their moral message front and center. But in the world today, there are those who would destroy our American heritage, who would tear down our ideals, trample underfoot the flag that came into being under the skillful fingers of Betsy Ross. So let's be alert and realize as Americans that freedom is everybody's job, Video Rangers. Captain Video is one of the first TV shows. Again, this is sort of the pre-rock and roll era to really make a clear distinction. Kids love it. Parents just don't get it. So if any of you Rangers haven't gotten your ring yet, why get one right away and wear it at all times to show that you're on the side of Captain Video fighting to defend law and order. It remained enormously popular for about five years, and then, uh, like a lot in Dumont, 1954-1955, to save money, uh, shows slowly uh, wound down and went off the air. This was a rough transition for star Al Hodge. He had trouble finding work because he was typecast and eventually, uh, reportedly at least, had alcohol problems, doing odd jobs in real estate, was a bank guard. And people would yell, hey, Captain Video, and they would quote from the show, how's the guardian of, you know, the free world doing? Or are you at your secret mountain headquarters? They would almost taunt him a little bit. I feel badly for him after... It was a lot of pressure being a children's television star at that time and carrying that kind of burden. I guess there just ain't nothing else we can do. Well, there may be, but sacrificing the ranger's life isn't one of them. The networks were always looking for someone who had the chops for live TV. Not just Dumont, but all the networks were looking for entertainers. They wanted to find performers who were comfortable performing live. 
And they looked at theater partially because they were in New York, but partially because they knew theatrical performers could do that as opposed to film and even some radio performers. And they looked back to vaudeville. It had been supplanted to an extent by different types of theater and by radio. But vaudeville makes a comeback because you have performers who can do a variety of different acts. They're comfortable performing live. And there's also a nostalgia that kicks in late 40s, early 50s for 1920s culture and for this older style of performance. Television shows were known as vaudeo shows because it was video and vaudeville. There were comedians, there were novelty acts, people riding unicycles, lots of dance routines, some a lot better than others, lots of singing, lots of music, lots of theatrical type performance, some of which was pretty amateurish, some of which was pretty amazing. The Milton Berle show is probably the most popular and well-known version of it. I don't know, like... Ed Sullivan's show also is presenting what would be known as Vaudio. And Dumont is doing it uh, partially through a popular show with Maury Amsterdam. The Maury Amsterdam Show, brought to you through the facilities of the Dumont Television Network. Maury Amsterdam, best known later for his role as Buddy on The Dick Van Dyke Show. I don't know what's wrong with that fella, but don't the suit fit nice. Maury Amsterdam was a nightclub comic. He comes to television. He's quick. He's funny. He's openly Jewish. Sometimes he'll talk really fast and then he'll look confused and say, he's imagining the audience not quite getting him. So he's doing his shtick. There's a guy lives on our block. I think he's off his noodle. He puts his dog on the end of a stick and wipes up the floor with his poodle. Maury's sidekick was Art Carney, who would later play the idiosyncratic Ed Norton on The Honeymooners. He's especially surreal. He seems to just sort of say whatever pops into his head. There's a scene on that reel from the Maury Amsterdam show where he inherits money. And he periodically just starts throwing money and saying, haircuts for everybody. I mean, you just, you never know what to expect. Dumont, first with the finest in television, proudly presents the Sherbrooke Console. The Dumont Company actually sponsored the program. And the goal in this show, as a lot of other shows, was to sell TV receivers and to sell Dumont's image. With 19-inch direct-view life-tone picture tube, oversized chassis for longer life and superb performance, both AM and FM radio, and free-speed automatic record player, America's distinguished teleset. One literally uses artwork from Norman Rockwell that Rockwell did for Dumont and has the all-American family sort of come to life watching a Dumont television set. There's a treasure of pleasure for moments of leisure with Dumont. They're trying to figure out how to sell things. On the one hand, Amsterdam attracts viewers. On the other hand, he's not necessarily presenting this sort of all-American Norman Rockwell, almost an upper-scale view of America that Dumont is going for. The sets are very expensive. Even among TV set manufacturers, Dumont was more expensive. They frequently would have like uh, well-dressed models standing next to the TV sets showcasing them, and then Maury Amsterdam comes back on. 
something. Yeah, ball ballpoint pen. Ballpoint pen. Manage to mark the ballpoint. This is the only pen that writes under chicken soup. They want to get the viewers, but they also want a certain image, and it doesn't totally work with Maury Amsterdam. And I think even Alan Dumont himself in memos that I found was a little bit confused by Amsterdam, and the sales staff never really knew what to do with him. Where's this guy get his haircut? The variety show was big business in early TV, and the networks were always trying their hands at new iterations. One of the things about Dumont, they were very good at spotting talent on the way up until they eventually got to the top and left Dumont. And that's certainly the case with Cavalcade of Stars. The Cavalcade of Stars! Starring Jackie Gleason. At the time, Gleason is not very well known. He's failed in his only previous television show, The Life of Riley. And he's working in Hollywood at a club called Slapsy Maxies, which is essentially show business exile. New York is really where the comedy is going on. It's really the center of entertainment. Gleason decides to take the train across country and essentially try out for Dumont for a few weeks as the host of Cavalcade of Stars because he doesn't really have any other options and he wants to get back in the television game. So he's willing to go to Dumont, which still does not have the reputation of a CBS or an NBC, and he's willing to go for just a few weeks. And he succeeds. He becomes a popular host, and he does it not by telling jokes the way Maury Amsterdam does, but through creating a series of sketches and comic characters, some of which became very well-known. Reginald Van Gleeson. A top hat-wearing millionaire playboy. Take my horse back to the brewery. I don't think I'll play polo today. The loudmouth. Pretty self-explanatory. There's one thing I know how to do, Clements, handle women. Some are sort of these lovable loser characters, the poor soul, the bachelor, these sort of pantomime shows. Silent characters that would show off Gleason's pantomime skills. He becomes enormously popular on Dumont, and eventually he creates, with the writers, Ralph Cramden of The Honeymooners. I'm stupid. No one knows any better. Not even me than you how stupid I am. The Honeymooners, the iconic CBS sitcom, began as a sketch on Cavalcade of Stars. There was a real charisma that came off the stage and Cavalcade of Stars. I feel like killing myself. You got a little dance music there, a little soft shoe style, my boy. Just through his persona and the way he presented himself, the sort of big, blustery guy who could still do a little bit of a song and dance, who could still do more subtle pantomime. I think that he was projecting this sort of image as a sensitive but tough big guy. He's really using his time at Dumont to play with different characters and ultimately create this image that he takes with him really for the rest of his career. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we were riding high with the June Taylor dancers, and away we go. Dumont gave Jackie his big break, and they took a big hit when he left for CBS in 1952. Not only are they losing their biggest star, but symbolically, Gleason leaving is telling the television industry that Dumont is small-time. Dumont signed him, Dumont nurtured him, Dumont gave him a form for all of his characters. Symbolically, it was very important, and financially, it was also important because Gleason was making a lot of money for Dumont. 
And Dumont was not able to pay him what he would have deserved at that time and what CBS was willing to pay him. Dumont also didn't treat him like a huge star. CBS knew how to handle talent much better. For somebody with Gleason's ego, he probably needed more attention from the upper executives, including Alan Dumont himself, and more of a sense that Dumont valued him. And he did not get that from Dumont. And I think that may have contributed to his decision, in addition to the money and the greater visibility that CBS offered. But it was devastating, not only to that program, but to Dumont as a whole. But not everything at Dumont was singing and dancing. This had better be nothing less than the end of the world. Sorry if I woke you up, Brady. You're sorry. What's the matter? It's on here again. Look, uh, we've got a murder. The Plainclothesman was a wildly inventive program. It told the story through the perspective of a detective. And he was not seen on screen. Hero without uniform. Unknown. Unsung, but always on guard, protecting you against crime. The camera takes the point of view of the title character, literally. Colleagues, criminals, and witnesses address the plainclothesman while looking right into the camera. Ken Lynch portrayed the title character. The hands on screen were his, but his face was never shown. With a microphone rigged around his neck, Lynch would skillfully bob and weave to avoid the camera's gaze. The Dumont camera people and director were sure to use the plainclothesman to show off a little bit, have some fun. It was very flashy visually. The crew utilized a forerunner of the Steadicam, dubbed the Fearless. Well, it wasn't robbery. I know, I checked that myself. They might do something like an establishing shot as the plainclothesman is looking around the room. Then he might focus on a piece of paper. Hey, what's this? And it would go slowly into the paper and focus until you would see even a letter on a piece of paper. Sometimes they shot things through a magnifying glass. Look at that. Sometimes they would have them check out a crime scene and they would go to a tiny bullet hole in a wall. Sometimes somebody would flirt with the plainclothesman and she would get really close and blow smoke in his face and you would see smoke blow into the camera. I knew what he was the first time he ever walked into this place. Sometimes somebody would hit the plainclothesman and the camera would go spinning around. So it was a way for them to play around and have fun. At the same time, they're showing a really gritty world that's more akin to something like some of the noir films from that time or The Naked City than many of the other detective programs. I examined the body, Brady. Looks to me like he was slugged behind the ear and then hit the back of his head against the metal corner of that uh, milk case. This was all live, and it was only one camera showing all of this, so it was technically very difficult and technically very creative. There was nothing else like this on early television. In another innovative measure, the plainclothesman utilized a basic element of filmmaking that was missing from most early TV. Editing. This must have been a very difficult show to do. 30 minutes every week from the perspective of the detective, much of it handheld. So one of the things that they did to provide a little variety and probably a little bit of a rest is that they would sometimes show a crime in flashback using film that they would have already edited. Or they'll show a climactic fight at the end through film. 
This allowed them to take a little break from the purely live shooting, and it also enabled them to stage it in a more realistic way than they could have on live TV. A lot of times if there were like fights on live television, they would look sort of hokey and staged, but they could use film and get a heightened realism. It was a very effective, very creative technique, and I think a good example of the kind of creativity that you would find at Dumont. In February of 1952, Dumont's Life is Worth Living came on the air. Dumont Television Network has presented Life is Worth Living with His Excellency Fulton J. Sheen, Auxiliary Bishop of New York. The setup was simple. Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen would do a talk on the tenets of good living in front of a live studio audience, equipped with only a blackboard and speaking directly into the camera. Lightness is the shadow that is cast by virtue. Courtesy is the external sign of the inner love and regard that we have for someone else. Politeness is charity, and charity is love, and love is God. Expectations were low, especially because of the time slot it occupied. Dumont just put it on the air because they wanted to counter-program against Milton Berle. Milton Berle was enormously popular on NBC. They figured nobody's going to watch Dumont anyway. Everybody's going to watch Milton Berle. We might as well put on something just to sort of fill time, satisfy public service requirements for religious programming. But something unexpected happened. Sheen was an amazingly charismatic figure on television. He was thin, well-dressed. People I spoke with who worked at Dumont talked about how handsome he was, uh, how that may have even been part of his popularity. He would dress in full regalia down to a purple cape. Sheen had been a college lecturer and worked on radio. He knew how to fill 28 minutes and hit his mark. He wrote in the dust the sins and a gentle breeze seemed to come up so suddenly, erase the writing. He mixed more overt Catholic teaching with more general sort of wisdom for daily life, morality, intensely anti-communist. Because the communist system cannot exist if a man thinks for himself. And he was also sort of corny. He had a dry, self-effacing sense of humor. Finally picked up the bowl, pulled it over his head and says, Look, Mom, Bishop Sheen. There was nobody else like him on TV. And for the people who didn't want to watch Milton Berle, Sheen represented a welcome and surprising alternative. Life is Worth Living wasn't only popular with Catholics, but Protestants, Jews, atheists. Everybody, everybody watched Bishop Sheen. He was a huge celebrity and an unlikely celebrity. (laughs) We can be absolutely sure about the worst in ourselves, but we can never be sure about the worst that is in our neighbor. We can only suspect that. Now, since we can be sure of how rotten we are, we certainly ought to be polite to those people we can't be so sure about. Some of the critics were also proud that a Catholic bishop would be so popular, and they saw it as a symbol of tolerance and acceptance of Catholics and the idea that after World War II, we're moving towards a more tolerant, multi-faith society. And the show became a commercial success something essentially no other religious program has done in primetime. It is because you will have heard something that was transcendentally superior. You will have heard something that was beyond all competition. You will have heard something the like of which is not given on any other television program. You will have heard something that delights every father in the United States, that thrills every mother, that pleases every child, namely, a commercial about an admiral refrigerator. (laughs) 
He actually attracted a sponsor, not Dumont, but another television manufacturer, Admiral Television, sponsored Bishop Sheen, which was unusual to have a commercial sponsor for this kind of religious program. And again, it was unusual for a religious program to be this popular on primetime. Life is Worth Living is the only Dumont program you might see on the air today. Some of his programs still turn up on the Eternal World Television Network. You can see his charisma, even though it is somewhat dated. I think that we're used to a lot more variety in a TV show. But you can understand why people would want to hear him. He was a good speaker. He was learned. And he knew how to grab an audience. And the doctor said to him, you feel a pressing pain here in the forehead? Yes, said the patient. And then a uh, rather throbbing pain in the back of the head. Yes. And then piercing pains here at the side. Yes. The doctor said, your halo's on too tight. <laughs> One of the last talents to grace the Dumont schedule was comedian Ernie Kovacs. The Ernie Kovacs Show! He was a late-night pioneer. He was on the Dumont late-night schedule on the local station, WABD. He had already done some local television before he ended up on Dumont, but he really lets loose at Dumont. He is going to play the minute waltz sitting on a keg of dynamite with a one-minute fuse. This was in 1954, as the Dumont network itself is starting to wind down. We just want to talk a little bit about a product we've got today that <laughs> I think you'll find it pretty necessary. He would do these advertisements for these tiny sponsors, local restaurants, local bars in the area. So he's sort of not quite big time yet, but he's incredibly creative. And there's one kinescope of Kovacs at Dumont that survives from this late night show. Uh, it's at the Museum of TV and Radio. It doesn't circulate as far as I know among collectors. But you can see some of his relaxed style, some of his creativity. He was terrific and a, an important forerunner of later late-night programs, whether it was running through the audience... Oh, wait, wait, I didn't even, just one second, I've got to say... ...or a sort of casual improvisational feel. I just saw you. Uh, over here are two gentlemen, I'm sure you both, uh, you know, both of whom you both know which of, both. It's sort of a raggedy late-night show, and this was before The Tonight Show went national, and obviously before a lot of the late-night shows that we're more familiar with today. Kovacs was known for experimentation, crazy camera tricks. Let me introduce our panel members. Invisible people. Invisible girlfriend. He would go upside down. He would do split screens. He would do a trick and then maybe pull the camera back so you could see how he did the trick. Actually, they don't take pictures with this at all. It's just a portable bar. But I think even more than that, he liked unpredictability and he liked sort of weirdness. This is for vermouth. Uh, in here, they keep the olives and the lemon rind. And down here, there's a little bourbon flask that has a tube running out here. This runs up into the executive's office upstairs. He's constantly using the camera to surprise viewers and then sometimes literally opening up a camera. The uh, camera is broken. I heard him pounding. What, what seems to be the trouble? Vertical deflection. Vertical deflection? <laughs> or instructing a cameraman, move back there, show him how you did that, that kind of thing. As he would run through the audience. He used really the entire studio almost like his playpen. And there's a sort of anarchic spirit there that I think you see on a lot of Dumont programs. Kovacs really epitomizes it, where you never know what he'll do next or what he'll say next. And it's live and it's okay, because even if he makes a mistake, it's over. 
it's ephemeral. You're going to see something else the next second and nobody's ever going to see it unless they're a crazy researcher hunting it down at the Museum of TV and Radio. All efforts aside, the end was imminent. I mean, at this point, Dumont is losing money. They don't have the money to compete with the other networks. And they start to sell off the company. First, they have two television stations left that they own. They sell both of those. In the summer of 1955, they cease network operations. And by 1956, they've broadcast their last programs as the Dumont Network. The other half of the company continued manufacturing receivers under the moniker of Dumont Laboratories, but was also sold off a few years later. Alan Dumont stayed on as a technical director until he passed away in 1965. I think especially later in life, he was probably angry, maybe even a little bit bitter. The company that he founded that carried his name that was well-known had almost become a laughingstock. One of the executives said they changed the name from Dumont because the Dumont name had been so tarnished. And it still is now almost a joke. Hey, how old is this TV? You could probably get the Dumont network on this thing cartoon-like family guy or The Simpsons will use Dumont to symbolize something that's antiquated, something that didn't work or failure of some kind. And I think Alan Dumont, as the namesake, felt that very keenly. I think more broadly, he was also very disappointed about television as a medium. There was a real optimism and a sort of rhetoric of optimism around television as it came up in the 30s and through the 40s, that it's going to bring people closer, it's going to expose political phonies, it's going to educate people, it's going to sort of bring the best of arts and culture. And that was very much in keeping with Alan Dumont's vision. And that's not what television became. And I think even what Dumont did well, a lot of the sort of creative commercial shows were not shows that Alan Dumont particularly liked or even understood. And as television evolved through the 50s and as it became very much an entertainment-driven commercial medium with a limited number of these more high-minded educational programs, I think that he felt like he created a monster that he was responsible for something that really has had a negative effect on the country. The company that bought the New York facilities inherited a warehouse storing vintage Dumont kinescopes. In the 1970s, to make room for newer materials, the old film reels were carted off and dumped in the East River. Ephemeral is written and assembled by Alex and produced by Annie Reese, Matt Frederick, and Tristan McNeil, with technical assistance from Sherry Larson and additional mixing from Josh Thane. 
Special thanks this episode to Casey Pegram. David Weinstein's most recent book is The Eddie Cantor Story, A Jewish Life in Performance and Politics. Learn more about him at davidmweinstein.com and more about us at ephemeral.show. There's a treasure of pleasure that's far beyond measure with Dumas. Home becomes brighter and hearts are much lighter with Dumas. Dumas, the hallmark of quality, product of master design. There's no comparing the joys you'll be sharing with Dumas. Thank you. That's just our little story about Dumont, friends. Next time on Ephemeral. As a kid, Franz Lidz's father would tell him scary stories before bed. Only these stories were true. My father was a scientist, engineer, inventor, who never really had much use for fairy tales. He preferred real-life grotesqueries to fiction. And so at bedtime, I would listen raptly to his urban horror stories, which are tales that fill the dark with chimera and boogeyman and golems. The most macabre tale was the one of the Collier brothers, the Hermit Hoarders of Harlem. I always liked that alliteration. Visit us on the World Wide Web and interact with us on social media at Ephemeral Show. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.